When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional, and unpredictable thoughts and behavior. From Ars Longa Media, this is Cluster B, scientifically informed, expert insights into the four Cluster B personality types, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorder. Here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question is, can personality disorders be used as a criminal defense? So what this is really talking about is the insanity defense, and can that be applied if somebody has a personality disorder? So an important disclaimer here from the beginning with this particular question, I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision. I'm not an attorney. So I'm really looking at this from the mental health side and the legal information I'm finding exclusively in the literature. So when we explore a term like the insanity defense, when we talk about this legal construct, we're talking about the intersection of law and mental health. And right away, this is a dangerous intersection. So if you use this in terms of an analogy, like an actual intersection on the roads, this is an intersection that you avoid when you're on a trip, like if you're going to work or to the store, this is the one that you don't want to drive through. This is a messy intersection with a lot of accidents. And the insanity defense has been brought up many times. It's been criticized and it's been changed over the years. So I'm going to go through a little bit of the history and then bring us up to current date and then look at how personality disorders fit in and don't fit in with the insanity defense. So first of all, when we talk about the insanity defense, we're talking about a defense that requires a minimum threshold. There's a minimum requirement to establish this defense. And that is mental disease or defect, which of course we now interpret as mental illness or mental disorder. And we know that this mental disorder component is necessary, but not sufficient to establish an insanity defense. So in order for an individual, a defendant to be found legally insane, they must prove that as a result of a mental disorder, They were functionally impaired in a legally relevant way at the time of the offense. So if we look at the technical definition, we would go to the American Law Institute's model penal code. This has been adopted in many jurisdictions. And I'm going to read this as a direct quote. And they use the term he instead of he or she. So I just want to make that clear in terms of when I read this. So here we see a person is not responsible for criminal conduct if at the time of such conduct, as a result of mental disease or defect. He lacks substantial capacity either to appreciate the criminality, wrongfulness, of his conduct or to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. And that term wrongfulness is in brackets in this quote. So this is more or less the official definition that has been used by, again, many jurisdictions, many states, the federal government, and many states here in the United States. So the insanity defense really brings up an interesting kind of philosophical debate. 
And in one of the articles I read, I saw a quote from a New Jersey chief justice that I thought really summed up the problem pretty well. He said the postulate is that some wrongdoers are sick while others are bad, and that it is against good morals to stigmatize the sick. Who then are the sick whose illness show they are free of moral blame? And later on, he goes on to say essentially that mental health professionals have not solved the riddle of blame. And this really kind of sums up the problem. Are we talking about mental illness or evil? And if we are talking about these two constructs, how do we separate the two? Because that's what we're really trying to do when we look at an insanity defense. So I suppose the first thing to understand this problem, this dilemma, is to define mental illness. And we use the definition for mental disorder that we see in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So looking at that definition, a mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotion regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. Mental disorders are usually associated with significant distress in social, occupational, or other important activities. So right away here from the definition of mental disorder in the DSM, we see that this covers a lot of different circumstances. And of course, that's supported by the fact that there are hundreds of mental disorders listed in the DSM. I said before in prior videos that one of my criticisms of how we use the term mental disorder is that we use it to apply to so many different situations when it's actually a non-specific term. If somebody says they have a mental disorder, I really don't know much about them. That doesn't tell me anything specific. But either way, the term mental disorder is used and it's part of the legal insanity defense piece. So we have to understand what a mental disorder is in order to apply that defense or to understand that defense. So then moving on, we also have to understand what mental health professionals consider a mental disorder for clinical purposes, meaning where the concern is really treatment, may not be what a jury considers in terms of criminal responsibility, in terms of determining that criminal responsibility. So even though we have a definition for mental disorder, again, it's quite broad, it's not necessarily what juries are going to use. So again, this is a dangerous intersection between the law and mental health, one filled with imprecision and uncertainty. So next, I'm going to talk about a big change that occurred in terms of how the insanity defense is applied. But before I get to that point, I need to cover what's called the volitional test so that the next point will make sense. So the volitional test has to do with this idea of the irresistible impulse, meaning if you look at that definition of legal insanity, it could be argued that if somebody has an irresistible impulse, they might qualify under that defense. So the questions that might be asked, for example, here when thinking about the volitional test would be, if a defendant was standing next to a police officer, would they still have committed the crime? Or would the defendant have been capable of refraining from a criminal act if they had been compliant with psychiatric medication? So again, the volitional test is about this impulse that somebody can't ignore, that they have to act on. Well, welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection, and interview top thought leaders, game changers, and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, 
how to heal, how to recover, and how to be brave. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So this brings me to a big change that occurred with the insanity defense. And it really started in 1982 with the acquittal of an individual named John Hinckley Jr. John Hinckley Jr. had attempted to assassinate President Reagan. Of course, he was charged with that assassination attempt and he was acquitted again in 1982. So in 1984, we saw the Insanity Defense Reform Act. And this really took away the volitional prong of the insanity test. So that piece with the irresistible impulse, that was removed, and only the cognitive prong was retained. So with the cognitive prong here, we see that a defendant must prove by clear and convincing evidence that they did not know the nature of the act, or if it was known, they didn't know it was wrong. So this is much more strict than what we saw before when you could have the cognitive prong or the volitional prong. So either one could be at work or both could be at work. But after this, for most jurisdictions, it was just the cognitive prong that was in place. Now, there was something else really important about the Insanity Defense Reform Act, and that was it stated that mental disease or defect only constitutes a defense under the insanity defense. So what this means is, if we look specifically at a personality disorder, for example, unless a personality disorder falls within the meaning of mental disease or defect in the test of criminal responsibility, then testimony from mental health professionals is precluded. So if a personality disorder is not considered a mental disorder in the test of criminal responsibility, then it can't be used as part of insanity defense. So this was an important change as well. It's important to note here too that after this change, some states did away with the insanity defense altogether. They don't have an insanity defense. So most states still do, but some don't have it at all. So an important point here while I'm on this topic, when we talk about kind of the myths behind the legal insanity defense, we know that contrary to widespread public belief, the defense of legal insanity is actually not raised very often. And when it is brought up, it's rarely successful. This not guilty by reason of insanity finding, this verdict, occurs in less than 1% of all criminal cases. And 70% of the time, when it does occur, it's actually the result of a plea agreement where the prosecutors agreed that the defendant should be hospitalized instead of convicted and imprisoned. And one last point before I move specifically to looking at personality disorders and the insanity defense. If a person is acquitted by reason of insanity, so if they're found not guilty by reason of insanity, what happens is they're committed to a mental hospital for an indeterminate period of time. But this is usually much longer than the sentence that they would have received if they were found guilty of the crime. 
So there's really not much incentive here for individuals to use this defense in the first place. Now, you could argue that in some situations, a mental hospital might be better than a prison, but you could also argue that many are not, right? So both are really miserable places to be confined. So if someone's looking at, say, 10 years in terms of a sentence, but they might be in a mental hospital for 20 years, they would really have to think about if it makes sense to bring up the insanity defense in the first place. So now specifically moving on to personality disorders and the relationship with the insanity defense. What do we see is actually happening here when individuals who have a personality disorder are arrested and charged with a crime and they go to trial? Can they use the personality disorder as a defense? Well, we see here that the insanity defense is much more likely to be applied to a psychotic or affective disorder. So psychotic meaning a break from reality or affective disorder like major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, something to do with mood dysregulation. We see that when someone has a personality disorder or a substance use disorder, it's really difficult to apply the insanity defense. And I'll explain more about that in a moment where that comes from. What we really see here is that understanding reality, so reality testing and the capacity to determine right from wrong, those are what's really being looked at. So therefore, psychosis and affective disorders are really more favored when it comes to this defense. So what's happening here is the criminal justice system is trying to prevent a shift toward a deterministic account of criminal conduct, right? So what they're trying to avoid is this idea that people can't help being who they are and doing what they do. Because if this were permitted, then the fear is a lot more people would commit crimes. So what do we see in terms of personality disorders being excluded from the definition of mental disorder? So if we look at the American Law Institute's model penal code, again, I looked at that before for the definition of legal insanity. We see that excluded from the definition of mental disease, as they call it, is any type of condition that's manifested primarily by a pattern of law-breaking and rule-breaking. And this specifically includes sociopathy or antisocial personality disorder. So what they're really talking about here when they use the term sociopathy is factor two psychopathy. So we have psychopathy, it has two factors, factor one and factor two. And sociopathy, or factor two, has this relationship with the mental disorder, antisocial personality disorder. So you can see that this personality disorder specifically is excluded. It's not considered a mental disorder in terms of the insanity defense. So with this language in mind here, with this look at antisocial personality disorder, and our understanding that psychotic and affective disorders would be much more likely to qualify under an insanity defense, we see that personality disorders essentially can't be used for this type of defense in most situations. But there have been individuals that think that personality disorders should be included. And there was one specific article where this was mentioned, and I'll put that reference in the description for this video as well. And it talked about some of the challenges with excluding personality disorders in the way that they have been. One of the factors here is that personality disorders are often comorbid with non-personality disorders. So with mental disorders that are not personality disorders. So how can mental health professionals be expected to look at the accountability and kind of separate out what was caused by the personality disorder and what was caused by other disorders? We also see a lot of comorbidity between personality disorders and substance use disorders like alcohol use disorder. So this makes the situation complex. Again, how can we separate these out? And I think too, what's happening here is that personality disorders are really being treated in terms of the law anyway as lesser disorders, 
like they're less valid. I think that's what's really happening when they say that certain disorders qualify under the definition of legal insanity and other disorders don't. So there's a distinction being drawn, and I'm not sure there's really any scientific evidence to support that that distinction should be drawn. Now, if personality disorders were considered a mental disorder in terms of legal insanity, there's some problems that would come up here as well. And I talked about this a little bit before. What we see with personality disorders is that sometimes they respond to treatment, but there's no empirically based effective interventions for most personality disorders. Again, with certain individuals and certain clinicians, we've seen success, but we can't replicate this consistently. So what could happen, especially with a disorder like antisocial personality disorder, is that if individuals could successfully use this as part of insanity defense, they would be subject to prolonged, indefinite, and really potentially lifelong civil commitment. So again, I mentioned this earlier, sometimes it's better not to use this defense because there could be a longer sentence, essentially, with the defense. And that, again, would be particularly the case if somebody is ruled as being dangerous because of psychopathy or sociopathy or antisocial personality disorder. Now, another argument we see being made in the research literature is that personality disorders shouldn't be part of legal insanity in terms of the defense, but rather be permitted as an affirmative defense based on diminished capacity at the time a criminal offense was committed. And I read an article that talked about a lot of case studies specifically for dependent personality disorder. Really interesting article about how the characteristics of dependent personality disorder really require a second look when it comes to criminal responsibility. Now, in line with this argument, we do see that some jurisdictions have established mental health courts. So individuals with mental disorders, including personality disorders, may be diverted to the mental health courts where they can receive treatment and their sentencing is really based on essentially diminished capacity. So we have seen this argument about diminished capacity used a little bit here with mental health courts, but we really have a long way to go in terms of treating offenders fairly based on the limitations of mental disorders. For more content like this, check out Healthy Toxic, another podcast from Ars Longa Media, all about what makes or breaks relationships, including issues related to narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how personality disorders affect relationships. Ars Longa, Vita Brevitz. Learn more at ArsLonga.media. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.